The following is a special presentation of the Buccaneers Sports Network. This is the Jay and Keith Show. Two broadcasters. Oh, yeah. Two microphones. And one meticulously scripted podcast. You what? Just kidding. Get it, J.K.? You get it. That's what I thought was so funny. It's not funny. Alongside Keith Brake, here's the voice of the Bucks, Jay Sandoz. It is a good day to be in the Dome. Do you know why it's a good day to be in the Dome? Because we're inside the Dome. We are going to be and we're not getting rained inside the Dome. We're not getting rained on. There's no rain in the area today, but we're not getting rained on. That's really? There's no rain in the area? There's no rain in the area, and there's shocking. no rain under the Dome. Nope, but we are going to have raining questions down for the athletic director, Dr. Richard Sander, coming up soon. I wasn't necessarily a transition I was uh, hoping it was going to be. I tried. No, no. You, I'm you, not very you know, good at that. That's you. That's we, need to, we need to leave the segues to me. Yeah. 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 We need to leave a lot to Although you. Although I will – don't, don't leave that to me. Me me, and Brooks Savage, uh, neither of us has any eligibility left, uh, but Brooks has a shoulder thing, and um, I might be able to throw a change up for a strike. Might. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would be a big, meaty change up that gets hit to left center – about 500 feet, knock out somebody's windshield. Do you remember, was it, I think it was our our, our friend John Stevens with the Elizabethan twins, Max Kepler hit a home run through the windshield of his Chrysler. Do you remember that? Do you remember that story? I feel like he told me that story, and I'm sure he shared it with you too because you guys were in the office together for a while. We were, and I'm sure he did. Off the top of my head, I don't remember, but uh, yes. Because I also remember him having a busted windshield. Somebody did lose a side view mirror in the left field lounge on Sunday off an SUV. It just went bluey in the top of the night. How would you how would you feel about that? How would you like to have that happen to you? And it's not even like a cool thing. It's like a it's an oh by the way home run in a blowout game. So when I'm in left field, which generally I tend to be more than not uh, when I go to games. I stay with my car. I don't know that I would ever stop a ball, but in my head, I'm like, hey, I got a shot of, like, you know, knocking it down or something. And uh, Well, every man does, yeah. It's what we just hardwired sure. into us. Like, sure. oh, I can catch that. I can catch that. I can fight that lion. I mean, I've had a few that, that like, landed or short hopped or, or kind of came – Kind of came my way, but I've not had one where I've really had to, like, dive and make a play. You know, sacrifice the body for the car. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm way too old. I'll just sacrifice the car. I don't, I don't really think I'm going to sacrifice the body. Uh, what if you sacrifice the body of the car? Put a big old ding in it. <sighs> yeah, I got a big truck now. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think trucks should have it. Yep. That's your uh, – the, the truck is is the Greg Zanin to your uh, Nicholas Backstrom. Mm. Okay. Or to your, I guess that would have been Chris Mason when he was when Zanin was in Nashville, just blocking all the shots. So speaking of block shots, totally totally sidebar there. Are you enjoying the men's and women's basketball tournaments? I am. I am too. I know. A lot I of have people really enjoyed the men's tournament this year. Like a lot of times, it just kind of this point in the tournament, as all the upsets have happened, and it's all just kind of peters out into your traditional powers. And this year, it has not. It has not. There is one Power 5 team left, and it's coached by everybody's abuelo, Jim Laranega. I love it. Laranega. i got to get the Enya right. Laranega, Jim Laranega. 
his second uh, run. I think people forget he had the George, George Mason. Mason. Yeah. Which, you don't you say less about your resume. That's a Hall of Fame resume. If you take George Mason and Miami to the Final Four, their only Final Four, so. all timer, all timer, legend. Yeah. Then you got the elder Hurley, right? UConn. Dan. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the other side of the bracket, right? San Diego State and FAU. It is. I mean, you're talking about what? A two fives and nine, right? And then and UConn's now a four? Let's, let's call it what it is. FAU and San Diego State were underseeded by the committee. Honestly, UConn was underseeded too. Three of these final four teams were underseeded and got very favorable matchups to get them to where they are. Miami, if anything, is the most Cinderella team here. They were 34th in the net. They were a tad overseeded. They beat the one and the two to get to this point in their regional. I mean, that is... Well, they hammered the one. Yeah, they beat Houston pretty badly, and they went on that huge run. Remember, after the guy inbounded it off the Texas player's butt and then took it up for a dunk... They went on like a 17 to 2 run after that and beat the Longhorns. So, I mean, you really you went toe to toe with the best teams in your regional and beat them or the highest seeded teams in your regional and beat them and Miami was a team that if you seeded according to net would probably be like an 11 or 12. They would be a team that would maybe have a tough time getting into the tournament. And that team is in the Final Four. With UConn, which looks, to me, UConn feels almost like the favorite at this point. It's just the, the length and the athleticism that they bring to bear. It's just They overwhelmed Gonzaga. Uh, I'm really just floored by how good that UConn team has been in March. And they've won, what, four national titles in the last quarter century. So... And then San Diego State and FAU on the other side is just amazing. There were a lot of Tennessee fans when they saw the way the bracket broke out and you're looking at a nine and a 15 and it was smooth sailing in. I think a lot of people, you know, kind of booked them like, Hey, that's the easiest route to get to the final four that region. Oh, I guess, no, what they didn't have Princeton. They had Michigan state and Kansas state. Right. So they had a, uh, you know, what is that? A three and a, was Michigan state a 10, right? Three and a 10 and then a nine. So you were looking at that situation and for whatever reason, Rick Barnes is very – and, again, I know they had the injury, uh, but still, did, it, you could not have had a better – and I think they were overseeding. A lot of people thought that too. But they had, you know, a pretty good draw, everything considered, to get to the Final Four, which Tennessee has as many Final Four appearances as ETSU, for those of you checking. Yes. Uh, that's the same as like ETSU has more NCAA tournament wins than Nebraska. There you go. So because Nebraska doesn't have any, so um, yeah. But Tennessee is coached by Rick Barnes. We know this. Rick Barnes' teams just for whatever reason they can't win the big one in March. He has not been to an Elite Eight in fifteen years. Fifteen years. The Sweet Sixteen this year. The Sweet Sixteen in nineteen when they won thirty-one games. Closest he's gotten since that Elite Eight run in 08. And he went two out of three years there, but just there's a lot of times where he has coached a really, really good team 
that's had a really, really good record and a really good season overall, and they just don't put it together at the end. I don't know what to make of it. Here's one I'll ask you, though. ETSU 30-4 and team. When you see what FAU's doing, you see what San Diego, maybe not San Diego State, but definitely FAU. I've seen fans talk about this. Is there a little bit of a sense of that could have been me when you watch FAU and think about that 2019-20 team? Yeah, I, I won't go as far as to say Final Four. I think certainly just using the year before Wofford as a 10 seed, mm-hmm. winning the first round game, and, and then Fletcher McGee just, I think it was one of his two offers of his life yep. uh, from three against Kentucky. And they were still lost by like three or four. I, I feel like you could take the Wofford, you could take FAU, and certainly I think ETSU was built – uh, tournament-wise and how they would have matched up. And all it's about matchups. FAU got some matchups. That they got do. Fairleigh Dickinson in the second round, yep. That certainly helps. But just the style of play matchup type things, I think, that help out. Uh, stylistic type plays. Uh, and I think ETSU would have had a very good shot at a Sweet 16. And, yes, that does, especially like Princeton, FAU. There were a lot of those this year where it's like, man – could have been ETSU in a Sweet 16. And then, you know, who knows how the cards fall there. I don't know that it's a full comparison. But, yes, there is a little bit of envy because, you know, the tournament was taken away. And even if they just played it with no fans and was a COVID-type tournament like they did the year before, I still think um, ETSU would have won at least one, if not two, had a Sweet 16. And then, you know, just depends on who they got from there. And, I, and the one thing I will say – is you saw more upsets when fans are back because the whole building, you know, it turns into a home game for those guys. Mm-hmm. I was at the UMBC, Virginia, and three-quarters of the building just started to carry UMBC. Not that they had to do a lot because UMBC kept knocking down open shot after open shot, but I've been in the buildings when ETSU's had the fan base behind them. I've gone to tournament games where you just see the underdog just starting to get the crowd behind him, and it's unbelievable to ride this wave. Now, it's not as bad. Well, I've been a couple Sweet 16s. I don't know. I, there's still a little bit of like, yes, the other couple teams, especially if you're the first game, will pull for the underdog because they believe their team's going to win the next game. So there's a lot going on there. But I think it's very um, – it's just a different environment when you get in those situations where this is why those teams don't want to play anybody. This is why upper echelon teams don't want to play a neutral site game. And they certainly don't want to go on the road because a lot of the advantages they get at home Hmm. are taken away. And I think that that ends up stacking the deck against mid-major conferences that have multiple teams that are capable of winning games in the tournament. And what we, we, we really... Ultimately, in all of this, I think there needs to be a reevaluation of how at-large teams are selected and seeded. Because you can look at, what is it, a four, a five, a nine, two fives and a nine in the final four and say, wow, look at how chaotic this is. This is so much fun. This is so unpredictable. But you can also take the other side of it and say, if you have that many seeds, that many teams outside the top four, the committee did not do its job. And the committee did not put the teams in the positions 
that they need to be in. In an ideal world, the committee gets it right if the field goes chalk or close to chalk. And we haven't been anywhere close to that. There have been a lot of mistakes made. And I think a lot of it comes back to the way that we evaluate teams and the the mechanisms through which we identify the old who have you played, who have you beat need to change. And conferences should be rewarded for success in the NCAA basketball tournament, in my opinion, and in the opinion of others, with more spots in the men's basketball tournament. Bill Connolly at ESPN created a coefficient system like what European soccer uses to determine who goes or how many spots are allocated to each league to get into the Champions League. And based on that coefficient from the last like five years, the MAC, Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference, would have gotten two automatic bids. And the uh, Big Ten would have gotten like four automatic bids. And you reduce the number of at-larges, but you increase the number of teams that are guaranteed from specific conferences to get in. And I think that is something that helps conferences build momentum more than even just the cash does. Because like Florida Atlantic, it's kind of funny. FAU is winning all these games. They're getting all these tournament units for Conference USA. They leave Conference USA on June 30th. So they're never going to see a penny of this. Um, And Conference USA is going to reap the benefits of it. But Conference USA is only going to reap a cash benefit from this that is exponentially dwarfed by what the Big Ten gets because the Big Ten got a huge head start because the Big Ten was viewed more favorably by what are, I think now, archaic evaluation metrics. Things like strength of schedule versus strength of record, which is a metric that we didn't have before. I think those are things that we need to reevaluate and alter and they're things that probably won't happen. But when I see this many teams that are quote-unquote lower seeds in the Final Four, it tells me the committee seeded the field wrong and that these teams, several of them should have been higher. FAU and FAU should have been way higher. San Diego State should have been slightly higher. UConn probably should have been slightly higher as well. Uh, FAU wasn't going to get in if they didn't win their conference tournament. That's preposterous. It's utterly preposterous. And, and it's, it's, it's laughable on its face now that we see them in the Final Four. So we need a complete reevaluation of the procedures that the committee uses to select the field of 68. And also, if we're on that topic, uh, no more AQs in the first four. Don't put, don't put automatic qualifiers in the first four. At-large is only. Let the teams that are in, that, that won their way into the tournament via an automatic bid, let them actually participate in the round of 64, guaranteed. My opinion. Extra tournament unit is what it is, but that's yeah, just Fairly Yeah, Dixon now gets three units. They do. Yeah. And the, the NEC gets three units for that, which is a nice little payout. Oh. Especially for that conference where a school just dropped all of its Division One athletics in St. Francis. Uh, that was hard to watch, but that is... Uh, that is a conference that needs that money you know, in the worst way. But also, a conference that has success should have, the, should have a real tangible opportunity to build on that success in a meaningful way, in a structural way, in the dance. And a lot of these leagues are going to get written off again. CUSA is going to get written off again. The American, which could potentially have all three postseason tournament champions joining it. Because Conference USA is 
losing Charlotte, UAB, um, what's the other school in the North Texas and FAU. They're all going to the American. They're leaving Conference USA. So the American could have all those teams in and get no real benefit from it and still be like, oh, yeah, it's a one-bid league. They didn't play anybody because nobody wants to schedule them. So go by strength of record instead of strength of schedule and rebalance the scales to give the mid-majors more of their due in men's college hoops and women's college hoops as well, which has had a little bit more parity this year. But the men's tournament, parity is off the charts. It has never been more balanced across the whole of men's college basketball. Women's college basketball, I think, will get there. You and I have talked about that. You want them to go to 13 scholarships. I don't know that I necessarily love that idea. I don't know how viable that is. But certainly, I think there is a growth there in the number of teams that feel like they can win multiple games in the tournament. I mean, look at how many one seeds bowed out in the first two rounds. Half of them bowed out in the first two rounds of the tournament. So, um. I think the mid it's time for the mid-major to get its due. And I wasn't always, I didn't always think that way, especially not when it comes to like, FC, you know, I was at an FCS power in a power conference that believed it was the preeminent power conference and coming down here and seeing, you know, get, getting a better sense of college basketball and how people feel about it. I think there's a validity to mid-majors are getting thrown under the bus in college hoops and that should change. And there should be some level of a significant amount of change in terms of the off-court product of college hoops. I can't believe you didn't like my uh, just drop uh, two scholarships. That's, uh... Well, I mean, you're taking opportunities away from kids. And I understand the, the, the idea is that talent filters down, but also it's the chance to get a full ride at a Division One institution. That's, it's t- that's a tough sell. Why you do it in different sports? You can make it up. It's a different opportunity for different people. Like you could, you could give another scholarship to volleyball. Give another scholarship. I was gonna say, to you, would you want to make softball a headcount sport? You could. You you could you could do all. I mean, there's, there's different ways. It, yes, uh, basketball players could have two less opportunities, but you could very easily find different sports to put two different scholarships in. I, if you're for me, and and competitive balance is my argument. If you're going to get competitive balance, I think you make it similar to the men's game and the scholarships that are awarded. But I'm but not. Nothing, I'm, not, I'm yeah. not. I'm not dead set on like that's an exact plan. I just think the easiest. I just the, to me the numbers and the trickle down would help the game tremendously. Where there is a huge gap in the have and have nots in women's. People talk about men's basketball. It is ridiculous and has been yes. for many years yeah. on the women's side of things. But Again, I, I I agree. I mean, I think if you take it away, you 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 have to put scholarship somewhere else. And yes, a basketball player may not have an opportunity, but then you give another opportunity that is a partial or a walk on, where you've got thirty kids on a soccer team and only thirteen of them get a scholarship. Like there's there's a, there's a way to get it worked out where there's still opportunities there. It's just in a different sport. That being said, I don't want to get that's a different conversation. Uh, Wednesday portal watch. Yes, uh, I've got. I don't really enjoying uh, Austin P uh, turning Northwestern uh, State or whatever uh, into Austin P because you know Corey left and now all of a sudden he took like five guys with him. So 
Uh, I wonder how good they'll be. Anyways, we got a lot to talk about on Portal Watch. We'll give you an update on ETSU, which is really at this point not a lot, but we'll check around the league. Yeah, and and I think we we can probably confidently say this: we've lost everybody. We're going to lose more or less that's, at this point. That's like and most mean, of, most of the departures have departed. That's my that's my feel after talking to a few guys in the hallway that mm-hmm. the five here the five it's going to be here and they'll try to add to that uh, as Brooks Savage continues to add to his staff uh, need to say what when you talk spring sports so Wednesday we'll talk a little spring sport we'll get you caught up on what's happening in uh, the rest of ETSU we'll talk portal watching and maybe Thursday do a little say what and and, and talk a little final four uh, mm-hmm. men's and women you gonna do some of that yeah let's do it all right would you like to talk to uh Dr. Sander I would like to yes the man in charge. Doc. Doc. I shouldn't have to remind you, I'm a doctor. Goes in the hot seat. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and I want them answered immediately. I'm your huckleberry. It's inside the dome. Did he just call it a dome? Dome, 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 dome. All right, this was his idea. He said, you know what? We haven't done inside the dome lately. Can you get me some questions? You know what we can do, Keith? We could definitely get some questions. <laughs> we got some of our own, but we're going to start uh, no particular order of uh, how they came in. Uh, Greg Dykes wants to know, question on the volleyball coach search. How many candidates have you interviewed? What were the top three criteria you're looking for in a new head women's volleyball coach? Yeah, well, we've interviewed four. And, um, you know, the major criteria is, you know, we want to continue the program, elevate the program. I think that's pretty much it you know somebody that can recruit somebody that can coach and somebody that has a great relationship with the players it's not too much different than any other um, program that we have we've had a lot of success um, throughout the years in in volleyball and you know I think the one thing that uh, we haven't been able to do is win the conference tournament and under Benavia's reign so you know that would be one thing that we would hope we could do have win the regular season and then you know win the conference tournament and advance the NCAA so I think that's a pretty standard thing. You know, somebody that win games that, you know, recruit good players who um, succeed um, as athletes and as students. And finally, um, you know, have a great relationship with the students so that they have a, a good experience. Let's go to Thomas uh, Stokes' question. Now that the interim tag has been taken off, do you have a 5, 7, and 20-year plan? <laughs> Thanks. the last one was done in, like, 2011. I thought we did one. We did. Okay. We did one in 15. 15, that's yeah. what I thought. But anyway, but if you were to, uh, obviously, in a concise effort, what would be your off the top of your head of five, you know, short, midterm, long? Well, you know, I, I think, just to be honest, you know, when I started doing this in August, um, when I when I got into this chair, there were a whole lot of immediate things that needed to be done. And um, as, you know, we continued to look at things, saw a lot of different short-term issues that needed to be dealt with. And so I think we're getting to the point where we're pretty close to getting those all done. Um, but there are some challenges down, down the road. And I think everybody realizes that, you know, the landscape of college athletics has, tra- has changed so dramatically over the last couple of years that, I think uh, just kind of trying to move along uh, the way we've done it in the past or status quo is certainly not going to work. So, um, yeah, we're in the process or, you know, I'm kind of in the process of trying to formulate all the, you know, all the issues that are out there, what the needs are, um, try to forecast a little bit of where college athletics is going. Um, 
So yeah, that's what we're doing. Um, actually, got a meeting with the president on to talk about some things, you know, more long-term wise. But you know, I think one of the issues that clearly we have, and I'm sure there are some questions there, are facilities. Um, we are, you know, when I got here, for example, we looked at things like, you know, the football stadium, you know, the lower facade, and the football stadium clearly needs to be dealt with from a aesthetic standpoint, but also from some other practical standpoints. Baseball has some issues that, um, like I said, when I got there, the, the fence is a challenge. The scoreboard, which has been a nightmare ever since it was put in, you know, that was a, you know, the previous administration decided to spend a million dollars on, you know, that scoreboard, and it's never worked. You know, got it from a, you know, not a, um, you know, not a well-established uh, vendor, and we've just always had trouble with it, and this year it just totally um, wouldn't work. So we had to make a quick decision to at least get it some, a score uh, scoreboard there, and, um, you know, that was a... Well, it wasn't a killer expense. It was significant, you know, so we had to get that. But we got to get the fence um, fixed. We've got to get the, um, certainly want to get the logo, the, you know, the old logo out of there and put new logo in there. And eventually we're going to um, have to redo the infield. I don't think there's anything that, you know, it's been 10 years now, I guess. So those, uh, that's probably about the lifespan of an infield. I think the outfield doesn't take nearly as much abuse is the infield um, and along with baseball you, I think it was announced you know last year that we were going to build a, a locker room and a hitting facility well that was a little premature I think so we're uh, just last week I had a meeting with a couple um, donors that I think we're going to be able to identify the resources to move forward with that project but that got way out there way ahead of you know what it needed to be so yeah that was about a um, well, I said we we're going to do it. It was about six or seven hundred thousand dollars shortfall that had never been funded. So I think we're pretty close to getting that done. Um, other, you know, and there are some other facilities things out there, but we're also dealing with. We're going to deal with NIL. How to deal with transfer portal? How to how to do all those sort of things? I'm not sure anybody's got a magic formula, but um, when you look at you know, the NCAA tournament, it's clearly that those are bought teams in there. You know, you look at Miami, you know, we all know that that's pretty well publicized at PAC. Uh, Miami's point guard, Nigel Pack got $800,000 in a car to go to Miami. Um, then Isaiah Wong came back and said, well, if you're paying this guy that amount of money, I was the most valuable player in the tournament last year. Um, I'm not getting anywhere close to that. I need to at least get that much or I'm putting my name in the portal. So I think that just kind of talks about where college athletics is and how we are going to have to, while we may not like it, that's the reality of where we are. So for us to be competitive, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with those sort of things. So that's kind of part of, you know, what we're looking at as we move forward. Um, I think there are other, you know, substantial um, facility needs out there. So hopefully, you know, down the stretch, we'll be able to, uh, we'll be able to uh, implement a significant, you know, capital fund drive. And, you know, hopefully all the folks will come help us do that, but, you know, somewhere to 40 to $50 million to get, you know, ETS to, to a competitive situation with facilities. And, you know, so we've got to be competitive in facilities. We've got to be competitive in NIL, you know, and uh, a few other things. So all it takes is money. Now, I, I have a follow-up on, on NIL as 
Um, obviously, this is a big priority nationally for the NCAA. The new president of the NCAA is in Washington. He's lobbying for national legislation. We saw an op-ed from Jack Swarbrick, the AD at Notre Dame, in the New York Times, basically lobbying uh, high-profile legislators, lawmakers, to try to give some sort of federal structure to name, image, and likeness and the quote-unquote market for student-athletes that we see today. How optimistic are you that that... that would be helpful to ETSU or that it will get done in a, in a timely manner? Well, you know, I don't have any confidence in, you know, Congress legislating how to run college athletics. I'm not sure what they know about it, but, um, you know, I guess the leadership that we've had at the NCAA, I think, has really failed the membership, just to be perfectly honest. I, I think, uh, you know, the name, image, and likeness thing has been a nightmare. And then they, you know, they, they kind of... Uh, supplemented that with you know the one-time transfer deal at the exact same time so that just exacerbated all the challenges that are out there with this there's no guidelines there's no anything I think Congress will step in you know they might I don't have any great uh, belief that that'll um, you know that that'll um, substantially um, minimize the challenge that are out there um, you know, and, and, you know, the guy who became president, uh, I forget his name now, but, you know, basically he was hired because he was a politician and they felt he could deal with, you know, the legislators. And, you know, their big worry, I was at the NCAA convention, their big worry was that, you know, there would be a movement to make student athletes employees of the institution. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not so sure that wouldn't be the best thing you can do because right now, um, you know, you really have no ability to um, do much with student athletes. And so, um, Maybe that's, that's the best way to go. They're just employees. You pay them. If they do a good job, you pay them. If, if they don't, then you can um, deal with that, you know, just like an employer-employee employer relationship. Because right now, I mean, coaches are being so hamstrung with, uh, you know, the situation that's there right now. Um, it's, it's pretty difficult to coach right now, I can tell you that. NIL, you know, well, if I don't get my way, I'm going in the transfer portal. If I don't get my way, I have a mental health issue. So, you know, we're just dealing with a lot of things right now. So maybe an employer-employee relationship is the best way to go. I think that would be unfortunate in some areas because I think what you would see is, you know, non-revenue student-athletes, I think their opportunities would be greatly reduced, and I think you would see programs cut pretty dramatically. Um, so, yeah, so, um, but I, I'm not sure that's not where that's going. I, I mean, uh, I think, you know, this NIL thing is, you know, that's that's the genies out of the bottle. I'm not sure you can get it back in. Um, and so that will eventually just, you know, it just, it's, you know, it just creates a, a greater bifurcation of people with money and people without. I mean, I think that's what you're seeing. So, um, you know, recruiting, you know, you know, like we're seeing now, you know, you have a good player, they come in, they play pretty good, and then it just gets to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a money deal. Um, they'll go somewhere else. And now there's all kind of tampering going on. We know that right now. We know that up close and personal. Do you think it's a, a, a little bit, though, ironic because you look at what Texas A&M supposedly spent in football that didn't translate into wins, and then you look at a team like FAU 
that may have some deal, but it's clearly not the level of what other schools are and then their success. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, and and I mean, you know, it's just like anything. When you're paying people, um, there's always uh, the issue of am I being paid a fair you know a fair salary you know so and so you know the starting quarterbacks getting a million dollars and I'm the you know I'm the uh, left offensive tackle and I'm getting twenty five thousand dollars and I'm protecting him so he can make a million dollars you know that issues right there so I mean I think dealing with that can always be a problem too that's going to take some real expertise on the coaching side how to deal with the inequity or the maybe not inequity but the imbalance of what you're paying guys we saw that with Miami and Isaiah Wong you know he was going bold if you know he didn't get more money because they were paying pack that much so you know that's going to be a little bit tricky deal and I'm sure in the NFL and you know the NBA they deal with it all the time I'm not sure I'm sure there were places out there paying players before NIL and they probably had to deal with it a little bit themselves but you know so I mean does that mean guys don't play as hard do they not care as much you know when they're getting paid I don't know but I think it is nice at a school like Florida Atlantic that clearly doesn't have the same payroll as you know Miami or you know and I don't know what the other schools do it's just you know the deal with Miami has been very well publicized so we know that one yeah all right well you've answered some of these questions uh for an example you mentioned the field house already um uh, there are people a, a lot of questions about baseball which I think you you've kind of addressed obviously the scoreboard uh, batter's eye American flag some of that stuff uh, obviously on the uh, things that need to be upgraded let's transition a little bit here to what josh wants to talk about with the coaching change in men's basketball and the struggles of football this past year what are your expectations for both those flagship sports that must be maintained yeah well you know clearly we want to win i think that one's pretty easy um how much is enough um good question i mean i think you want to see that there's progress being made you know in men's basketball I mean, to be honest, I didn't see any progress being made, you know. It looked like me, we were sliding backwards in men's basketball. So I would say, you know, we want to see significant progress made. You know, we want to see, you know, players play. We want to see them play hard. We want to see them play together, you know. Um, I don't think in, you know, I think, um, you know, this past year um, in basketball, you know, you didn't have to be a, you know, you didn't have to be John Wooden to figure out that, you know, the guys – were inconsistent they didn't play together they didn't play hard um so um i think that's something that you know i'll never i'll never accept you know what i mean if we can't get that right that's that's uh, about culture that's about identity that's about you know guys caring about one another so from that standpoint that's something that i think if you do have a, a culture that you know commits to hard work and teamwork and playing with passion, playing with enthusiasm, um, you know, good body language, being together out on the on the field or the court, not doing stupid things um, in games, you know, I, I think that would be, you know, something that, you know, would be something that we looked at. Um, and like I said, improvement, you know, I, I think we always want to improve. And if we're not improving, then, you know, we're, we're going backwards. So I would look for improvement in those areas. He also want to know, uh, you mentioned what you want to see in the program. He says five years down the road, where would you like to see football, men's basketball be? 
Yeah, well, you know, I would like to see football, I mean, I would like to see basketball get to a point where, um, you know, we were in 1920, you know, that staff came in and in five years they got to, you know, winning 30 games, you know, being ranked whatever we were ranked, somewhere in the top 30 in the country, you know, so that's clearly possible. Um, so in a perfect world, that's what I'd like to get to, you know, it's it's pretty interesting to me, and I you know I don't want to belabor this, but you know it's pretty interesting to me to watch, you know, the NCAA tournament and how the teams play, and to me there's kind of like a common thread that is pretty identifiable when you look at the teams that have had success. You look at Miami, and you know you got four perimeter guys that can really play. They can really shoot. They can handle the ball. They can defend. They're athletic. They play with a lot of energy. And then you have one guy in the middle. If you look at Florida Atlantic, you look at Miami, um, you look at Sandy, uh, San Diego State. Those guys all kind of have the same model. They defend really hard. They have four perimeter players that can score on the perimeter. They share the ball. That open the middle of the court, and then they have a. a a center who is a force in the middle, who can rebound, who can block shots, who can take up space, who can go set screens, who can do a lot of things. I mean, you can see that. So I would think that, you know, that's where we are going in the trend of basketball. If you looked at our team, we were just the opposite of that. You know, we didn't have perimeter players who, you know, could guard four, four positions on the court. We didn't have perimeter players who could make shots. We didn't have perimeter players who could drive the ball into the open space and make a good decision and either score or hit an open player. So, I mean, I think that's kind of, you know, what we're looking at when I talk to, you know, Coach Savage. That's clearly one of the things that he identified. And if you look at the offense that he's run, the last, you know, three years, um, that's what those teams did. You know, they opened the court, they had people that could make plays, but they also defended really hard. You know, they had four players that could switch basically, you know, that could play off ball screens and, and that sort of thing. So um, that's, in basketball, that's kind of where I think we're going. Uh, I guess that was part of the question. And then in football, um, you know, I think football is a little bit harder fixed than basketball because you have so many players, you know, and, and injuries are such a factor in there. You know, uh, I, I would think, you know, Coach Quarles is going to um, be much more involved in the offense. I would hope that our offense really starts to be able to move the ball, um, score points, and take some of the pressure off the defense. So I think as we do that, I think you'll see considerable improvement. Um, Hopefully, you know, we know we can get to a point where when we make it to the quarterfinals of the FCS championship in five years. Although, you know, I'm not totally convinced that model will stay the same either. So in five years, who knows what, you know, the FCS will look like, what the whole, you know, college football structure will look like. I, I, I mean, to, to think it's going to be what it is right now, I think, is pretty naive. So... Um, we're just going to have to look at that and see where we are and continue to try to, you know, be a little bit ahead of the curve and figure it out. But, yeah, I mean, if things didn't change, that's what I would hope we could do, get back to being, you know, compete for conference championships and then advance in the NCAA playoffs and win a game or two. I'm going to skip down a question just because it's pertaining to men's basketball. 
Uh, Scott, I wanted to know if you could tell us who all you interviewed or talked to about the men's basketball job. And then my favorite one, yeah. why, why was it so fast? Yeah, and he's the only one I've, I've heard ask that. Everyone else has liked it. Yeah. It was swift. It was the decisions went. He's the only one who wanted why it was so fast. But there was more than him asking, who, who can you speak on? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's really not fair to, to say that to because these were sitting head coaches who currently have jobs. Um, you know, I'm not sure, you know, that wouldn't compromise their particular situation and they were willing to talk to us and actually, you know, we're very enthused about, you know, this job right here. The three of the, um, you know, three of the um, folks that we talked to were either in the NIT or the NCAA tournament. Um, and while we were going through this process, um, it just not right to be able to identify those people you can probably figure out who they are you know they're all in states that are let me think about this for a second i don't want to misspeak i'm trying to think about this um i think all these states in were these are all coaches that are in states that are contiguous to tennessee so they they all knew they were all very familiar with ETSU and um, our program were fairly, um, were fairly, um, fairly well versed in um, ETSU basketball, ETSU community. So they had been around. But like I said, they all were either playing in the NIT. Three of them were playing in the NIT or the NCAA. Um, other ones had been. Um, successful one had been a successful head coach for a long time now was a high profile assistant at you know a big 10 school um another one was uh you know a, a coach in the state of tennessee head coach in the state of tennessee um that's the ones i'm trying to think of so yeah those are ones pretty much interviewed so i, I, I guess i was i guess it was a misconception there always is is that there's a bad rap about ETSU's job, especially the last couple of years and the last couple of – and how that's kind of went. Yeah. You we, had no trouble getting people to interview, or if you called to ask for an interview, uh, nobody turned you down, right? I mean, all of the, the people that we interviewed reached out to us, okay? We reached out to a few people, but the people who were in the tournament all reached out to us. We didn't reach out to them. They wanted this job. So all the people that are saying, oh, well, nobody wants this job. No, not, not at all. We have people who, we have Final Four coaches who had worked with these people calling us and saying, hey, you know, we really, I really think this guy would be great. He's terrific, so on and so forth. So we had governors of states calling. We had U.S. senators calling, trying to influence this decision for these folks who, you know, are sitting head coaches who have had a lot of success. So that thought of nobody wanting this job, you couldn't be more far from the truth. I've got, you know, I, I got the, you know, the head coach of the Boston Celtics calling me, you know, about a guy. So, you know, those kind of things just aren't real. Plus, tons of other people, I'm getting text messages about this guy, that guy, whatever. So, um, yeah, you know, that's so 
off target. It's unbelievable. Did you ever have anybody call you and go, you know what, this guy stinks, don't talk to him? Never did have anybody yeah, do that. A, oh, isn't that amazing how that happens? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I was at VCU, you know, we had an opening one time, and that's back in the days when you had a secretary who kind of took your calls. And so I'd get calls from, you know, Dean Smith and John Thompson and people like that, and I told my secretary to tell them, well, if you're calling about, you know, scheduling a home-and-home home series with VCU, I'll be glad to talk to you. But if you're just calling to promote one of your own people, I really don't have any interest in talking to you because you don't care about VCU. I can tell you that. This is all about you. It's not about VCU. Now, some of the guys who called me, I know very well and were very supportive of their people. So I valued that. You know, if Shaka Smart called, I valued what he said. You know what I mean? If Bob Huggins called, you know, I would value what he said. But, you know, overall, if I have no relationship with somebody, you know, and they call, they don't care about us. They're just trying to, uh, you know, they're just trying to, you know, feather their own nest, right. basically. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that sitting head coaches and, and Division One head coaches were yep. reaching out for this job, mm -hmm. uh, trying to get here. Um, that fires me up as an alum. Like, I'm, I'm pretty excited to hear that because that means that, you know, a lot of times you think, okay, it's a mid-major program. It's a good proving ground for a, a high-level assistant to take their first head coaching job. You have coaches that are taking teams to the dance that want to come to ETSU. What do you what do you think it is about this program that's so appealing to people at other programs and at this level that want to come to ETSU from an existing head coaching job? Well, I think there there are a few things. First of all, I think there's a pretty strong tradition in history of ETSU being very successful. You know, you go back to when I played against ETSU back in the 60s, you know, that team that I played against, you know, with Skeeter Swift and uh, Richard Arnold and, and uh, those. Kretzer, your boy Kretzer. Yeah, what? Kretzer, Kretzer, yeah, oh, Kretzer, <laughs> Mike Kretzer, I see him a couple times a year. Um, you know, there's that goes back that far, you know, and then, of course, you know, everybody knows all the, the rest of the great teams that have been here, so I think people realize, you know, that there's a tradition, there's a history, plus this community has has supported ETSU basketball over the years. They care about it. They have a university administration. I think everybody knows President Nolan cares a great deal about every program at ETSU, but he loves basketball, you know. He plays basketball. Well, not very well, but he plays. Um, but, you know, so um, I think people realize that. I think administratively they know their support here for the program. So I think it's a very, very um, – good job. I mean, like I said earlier, they can go back and see that as, she, as short a time ago as three years ago when, you know, we were ranked 25th, 26th in the country. They know you can do it here, you know, that um, all the resources are available, the human resources, and this is a great community to live. So there's tons of things that are very, um, very, uh, very well thought of. Um, being the head basketball coach at ETSU. So without uh, letting you toot your own horn, I'll, I'll toot it for you, but I would say obviously you knew what you were doing and you hired Steve Forbes. Brandon Mock Brown appears to be a, about as a home run as you can get considering the situation she took over. Brooke Savage is the next guy in the line you hired. So the obvious question what was it about Brooks or why Brooks? Yeah, and can I, can I go back and answer the quickness question? Yeah. I don't think oh, yeah. I answered you, that. Um, yeah, the quickness question. You know, um, I, you know, I, 
I think as time goes on, as an athletic director, you have a pretty good feel for, you know, what's what's going on in the world out there, college athletics. And, you know, over the, you know, for quite a while, you know, I've done this program called Villa 7 Top Connect. So I have a pretty good handle on what's going on in college basketball, probably, you know, not a lot of other things, but college basketball and have a, you know, a pretty solid inner circle of people who really know what's going going on in, in, in college basketball. So I think I was able to aggregate a lot of data very quickly because of, you know, the relationships that I have with those people, plus, you know, the knowledge that I have um, from being around for a few years. Um, so I think I didn't see where anything was going to change in uh, after four or five days. We knew the people. We were able to talk to the, all the coaches. We had numerous interviews. Um, we heard from a lot of different people what was what you know what their feelings were, what their thoughts were. So I didn't see you know I don't see any reason to. Um, pause on making a decision. I didn't feel that anything was going to change from when we hired, when we made the decision to hire Coach Savage, you know, a week down the road, two weeks down the road. Maybe it would have, maybe it wouldn't have. Maybe some of the people that were involved in the interview process were going to get jobs. So we were going to make that decision relatively quickly. And it just turned out when I looked at it, you know, that and, you know, input from other people. But, you know, it was my decision. You know, I thought well, Coach Savage was the right person. Can I, can I say this, too? I, I think because of what you talked about way earlier with the transfer portal and all this other yeah. stuff, that that has – it's not like the old days where, you know, your roster was going to be pretty much your – one, two guys may transfer, but in today's world, you're losing players on top of everything else. Yeah, and I can't remember exactly what day we we finalized um, the deal with Coach Savage, but I think it was pretty shortly after the transfer portal opened. So it it also was going to give him an opportunity to get out and see some people. We actually have I don't know if I can say this I, I may get spanked for this, but we were going to have you know two recruits on campus here you know Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So this gave Coach a chance to get out there see those people. He's visited with them. He's talked to you know their families. Um, talk to other people who are influencers in their decision and can get them here on campus very quickly. So hopefully we can get some commits quickly where, you know, maybe, you know, two weeks down the road, some of those people that if we would have dealt with them right now wouldn't be there because they've already made a commitment, you know. Um, the, the one interesting thing in the portal, I think, is some of these kids go in and they want to make a decision pretty quick because they don't want to get left you know at the altar so i think that was a another reason you know that made sense for us to move that quickly all right and then uh brooks you obviously you knew him before but what was the, the what were the factors that went into making him the, the head coach for you well i mean i think you know i think he had the blueprint you know i've said this you know in the press conference i think he had the blueprint to um, how we were able to build that program to win whatever it was, 130 games in five years, lose 42, um, play in the conference championship game four out of five years, um, have the longest winning streak in the country, I think, one year, um, recruit those kind of players. And, and I think, you know, there are differences. And, and, you know, I think people will say, well, you know, Coach A came in here, he was on Coach Forbes' staff, and it didn't work out great for him. But a little bit of you know, when we had the incident that created all the, the controversy, um, 
you know, we were still doing pretty good at that point. I think we were 11 and five, tied for first in the conference. So seven and one going into that game. Yeah, seven and one going into that game, and we really should have won that game. Yes. I mean, we should have been eight and one. I mean, a strange situation. We're an assistant called timeout when Damari makes the three from the corner that basically wins the game. That basically now we're really rolling at that point, and then you know, and then all that happened, and the turmoil just was pretty tough. So I don't think the basketball piece of it, you know, people kind of need to understand that. The basketball piece was rolling along fairly good, you know. Um, but I think the other hand is, you know, Coach Savage was hit his fingerprints all over every element of the program. Where you know, Coach Shea is a terrific basketball guy. He's a strategist. He's great on individual development. So you know, terrific at that. But I think Coach Savage, he was here from. Uh, one second after Coach Forbes took the job, and he was a part of everything from recruiting to um, engagement with the university, with uh, working with the athletic department staff, of uh, being on the court, individual development of recruiting, of um, just the strategy of how to um, create the processes for the players to develop, um, both from a you know, basketball standpoint and from a personal standpoint of working with the alumni of uh, you know the basketball alumni um, just every element you know um, coach Savage had his fingerprints on it and then you know watching you know Wake play the last three years one of the most efficient you know offenses in the country and figuring out how to uh, maximize the talents of people like Alondis Williams and and uh, Tyree Appleby, but Damari Monsanto turning him into one of the premier um, players in the country, and then taking other guys and fitting them in, Isaiah Musius and you know people like that. So I think when you saw that and saw how efficient they were and how well they executed on offense, and knowing that you know every game they were making adjustments, they were playing up to each player's, you know, strengths. Jake Laravia guy comes in and, you know, offensively now he he's, uh, is a first-round draft pick, you know. So I think, you know, uh, Coach Savage had his – I mean, that was basically his responsibility um, in their program. He was the offensive coordinator. Um, when I talked to Forbes, he said in, in the past year, he's probably called five plays the whole year. Coach Savage called every other play. So I think from that standpoint, if you watch Wake, they play attractive basketball. They play basketball that's, uh, you know, exciting and I think really engages the crowd. So I think that was a big part of it, too, because I thought, you know, um, our offense was certainly not one that was exciting to watch. and. Um, efficient so that's that's important plus you know I think Brooks is a motivator I think he can engage with people I think he has a great rapport with the players and uh, things that are important as we build a culture in an identity that will be um, ETSU tough because I think we really kind of lost that mentality and I think I said this in a press conference. I can't remember. I wanted to, but I probably forgot. You know, um, when we came up with that mantra, ETSU tough, it wasn't we came up with the mantra and tried to fit it in. It was after watching these guys play, what were we? What was our identity? And our identity, we were ETSU tough. We were tough mentally. We were tough physically. Teams knew that when they played us, they were going to be in for a struggle, whether it was Kansas 
or um, Western Carolina, they knew that, you know, they were going to have a, a battle on their hands. Uh, a lot of other questions were facilities. You've, you've kind of touched on them at baseball, football, some basketball. The last question I'm going to ask you before we talk a little Final Four with you, I, I find very interesting, not ETSU related, but certainly ETSU. Uh, ETSU adjacent. Uh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> when will the Southern Conference hire a new commissioner and what are one or two or two or three things you think they should address? So who, well, when will the when will they make a decision? Number one, and then what would you like them to address? Well, you know, I, I wish I had a little more information on this. The process that is um, that has been indicated to me is that there will be a search committee, and the search committee consists of the chairperson, is the president of Furman. She's, um, I guess, she has been elected to do that. I think it's the chancellor from UNCG and maybe the commandant uh, from VMI, VMI. Yeah, and then correct. I know the there's only one AD on the committee, and that's Richard Johnson, who's the AD at Wofford. Um, <laughs> they, they seem to have a yeah. they, they stranglehold, buddy. <laughs> something, oh yeah, um, going back to Danny Morrison. Um, and then uh, there's a faculty rep on there and an SWA. Um, so you know that's about all i know although apparently they just hired um i don't even know what todd's um search firms and todd turner right. yeah, their search firm and uh so todd's going to do it and todd actually just emailed uh, us and wants to get a zoom set up with all the athletic directors so at that point now for me um and i'm probably a bad one to ask i think the whole conference needs to be um, kind of looked at from an overall standpoint as to, you know, what their priorities are, what they're really doing. You got to realize that this, I mean, when, you know, once again, you know, I hate to go backwards, but when we were in the Metro Conference, when I was at VCU with Louisville, um, Virginia Tech, South Florida, UNC Charlotte, Southern Miss, and Tulane, we had three people in the conference. We had a commissioner, assistant commissioner, and basically a communication sports information person. I don't know how many people we have in the Southern Conference now, but we got a bundle of them. That's a lot. So, uh, so just to kind of give you a little insight as to how you know the conference is funded, basically every conference in the country that competes in the NCAA tournament will get six units, okay? So a unit basically is the pool of money and it's distributed back to the schools. So every school gets six units, no matter what happens. So you get at least six. So each unit is worth $338,000, okay? So you can do the math. That, what's that come up $2.3 million. So that all goes to run the conference office. This past year, there's another unit. If you win a game, you get another unit. Mm -hmm. So Wofford won a game in 19, I think. So we get yep. another $338,000. In the future, now that Furman won a game, we'll get an additional $338,000. So there's some formula now where that's taken and distributed back to, you know, the conference membership based upon certain, cri certain criteria. But that rolls over every six I mean every year it rolls over and the, the unit from six years ago goes off and the new unit comes in next year so that's that plus the other thing is the conference office also the 
the men's and women's basketball tournament, they take all the revenue from the men's and women's basketball tournament. And, and I've never seen what that is. I've asked, but you know, this isn't the most transparent um, organization I've ever been a, a affiliated with. Uh, they take all that money. The, um, they also take all, you know, all the marketing and sponsorship money. Um, they pay, or we pay dues of $32,000 a year to the conference. So that's $320,000. Each school in the conference pays that. So you can see this number is getting up close to $3 million. And, and uh, we get no distribution back from the conference. The only thing we get back is about, and you probably know this number better than I do, we get about $65,000 to uh, cover the cost of, uh, you know, our ESPN Plus um, broadcast, but we are mandated, I think this is right, if I'm wrong, tell me, we are mandated to do 65 games, productions, whatever it is, so I can tell you, we can't produce um, 65 games for $68,000. Yeah, it, 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 it's a little over a 1000 per game. Right. You know, obviously, average, now most schools, like we do, we, we try to do about 75. Now, some schools try to do every single game and all that, but Obviously, the equipment to run that sixty-five thousand dollars go a long way on top of the personnel to run. Right. I mean, so you figure equipment wears out, you know, um, and people, you know, you need cameramen, you need talent, you need producers, you need production. You know, we have a, 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 a trailer, truck, whatever yeah, that we have to keep uh, current. And so, yeah, I mean, so you can see then, you know, each team is mandated that they have to buy $16,000 worth of tickets to the men's and women's basketball tournament. So that's just another $160,000 that, that the conference gets. You know that, you know, the Citadel and Sanford aren't buying $16,000 or aren't selling $16,000 worth of tickets. No, and you have to, to buy them. a baseball suite uh, for, for the whole baseball tournament, too, if you want to add that in there while well, yeah. we're just tacking it on. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you know, and, and there's all kinds of things. So I'm I'm actually sending an email out to all the ADs saying, you know, we need to look at this thing. And um, yeah, so th those are some of the issues that I think the conference really needs to deal with. Plus, uh, you know, I just think we need to be kind of proactive and figure out some things that really will create value for the membership. I'm not sure that's been the focus of the conference. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I don't think they wake up every day and say, what can we do to make them, each of these members be more successful? So that's, that's probably way too much information. Nobody probably really cares. But Oh, uh, no. Oh, I, no, uh, I that, care. That, that, there are a lot of people <laughs> that asked about the distribution of the NCAA tournament money as soon as Furman won because the assumption is, like every other place in the country, you know, the first unit is going to go back to help pay some of the schools and stuff. And it does. So there's a lot of misinformation on how – because each league is different. And I do know the Southern Conference switched how it was um, from the Davidson run, from, from the Tweet 16 and the next year the Elite 8, because it was anything after the one unit, the school got to keep like 50% of it. And, of course, they just – so they've switched it to be a little bit more. But you – if you don't win, which the Sun Conference didn't do for a long time. Right. There was nothing really distributed amongst the schools. You really didn't get a whole lot for going to the tournament, which most places in the country, that's the reward for going to the tournament is you were getting some financial support. Yeah, I mean, you know, that has changed so dramatically over the years. I remember when I was at Memphis, 
you know, you basically got all the money. You know what I mean? I think when we went to the Final Four in 85, um, we, Memphis, and this is 1985, that's a long time ago, by going to the Final Four, I think we earned a million and a half dollars, something like that. So, uh, but then that model was changed where the units went back to the conference and then redistributed back out. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, with our conference, I think the formula is something, and supposedly you earn, um, you earn, I think there's, I, I don't know exactly, there's like 12 units of the, of the uh, incremental money that's earned over those six units, and it's distributed back to the schools. I think the team that earns it may get two units, right, yeah, and everybody that, else gets one. Yeah, my, my understanding, one. that's how it is, yeah. is. There's 12 units. One actually, believe it or not, so it goes back to the conference. Right. Then the other nine schools that didn't go get one unit, and then the school that does go does earn two units. That yeah. was and uh, I, and my I th understanding of it. And, and when I did this the last time, I think the deal was you had to kind of – show that you were using that money for men's basketball whether okay we're using this to enhance the locker room or we're using this money to go on an international trip for basketball or things like that so i i think you have to show that i haven't really uh looked at it but um that's what it was when i was there the last time i really wish that you know i'm really glad 90 Seven percent of the time, this is a podcast where nobody could see us. But this is the three percent where I wish there was like a camera zoomed in on Keith's face when you were explaining this, because <laughs> I've tried to, as he's come in, let him know that this is a, a different setup and a different animal. And I've given him the, I think, it's why he particularly hates Wofford because I've told him like this has been. But just to see his face when you were giving the president fur, but then Richard Johnson's on there too. I think it's also strategic that. Um, uh, right now, uh, other than you and the ADs getting a chance, that Mercer ETSU and Chattanooga's pretty much been shut out of the uh, uh, looking for the new commissioner. Yeah. Citadel too, I think. Citadel's yeah. out. Yeah. So I think there's six schools represented, four that aren't. Which um, makes, yeah. Why? Yes. Uh, got a lot of questions about that. You don't have the answers, and I don't want to get. Uh, we'll we'll move on from from that topic. <laughs> Yes. Uh, anyways, that was a great uh, John. Heck of a question on the SoCon commissioner and how we got got on that. All right, let's let's talk a little final four. We're well, talking about tournament units going to conferences. Yeah, FAU has just earned a boatload of money for a conference they won't be in in about four months. So. Oh yeah, they're going out. They're of going the, to the American. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that happens. You know, VCU did that too. They earned a ton for the Colonial Athletic Association and then left to go to the Atlantic Ten. So, um, yeah, they, there's. There's a lot of uh, history of those kind of things. But, yeah, they did. They earned a lot of money. Um, so what? let me think. They've got four, five. So, yeah, five units. So, you know, they've earned a lot of money. You figure five units over six years, that's 30 units. So figure it out, 30 units times 388 or what is it? Yeah, three thirty-eight. Three thirty-eight. Yeah. yeah, so that's uh, it's like three thirty-eight eight eight seven or something yeah. ridiculous. I, I, yeah. I, Saw where it was finally posted. Uh, it's about ten point one million dollars. That's a pretty good run for them, isn't it? Seems. Yep. Mm -hmm. Seems like a lot. New Mexico yeah. State's going to love that. Yeah. Are they going? In, so that's in Conference USA now. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's had a dramatic change in membership, huh? Yeah. New Mexico State, Jacksonville State, Kennesaw State's going. Uh, Sam Houston's going. That's a uh, pretty big shakeup over there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, well Western can well, – well, 
Western Kentucky was rumored to want to be in the at a different conference for a while. I wonder if that will keep them sitting tight for a little bit. Well, you know, and the other thing that's interesting, I've got a little experience with this too. I wonder if the, um, you know, if the if the recurring membership in in Conference USA, the Western Kentuckys and the Middle Tennessees, I don't even know who else is still in it that was in FIU it. FIU and you, Utah. You just wonder if part of their um, deal was okay whatever we earn this year in the tournament we're not sharing you know <laughs> if i'd have been at western or middle that's what i'd have said to those folks hey appreciate it but you know if we win extra units man because when i was at you know when in another uh in another life you know i kind of had that same situation occur when we were in the metro and that kind of fell apart to us and virginia tech basically try we we kind of had that mindset you know so let's talk about final four your thoughts on what i, I think has been a great basketball tournament now a lot of the people you know they they want the blue bloods which last year you had four blue bloods in there this year i mean uconn i guess other than uconn you you got three you know miami's first ever fau's first ever and san diego state's first ever mm-hmm. trip to the final fours yeah that's pretty interesting you know i, I it's uh this tournament was a really different from a lot of the tournaments i mean early on a lot of times early on you'll see a 12 and a 5 and 11 and a 6 win you know what i mean didn't have a lot of those this year but what you had is the the, you know the fau's and the fives and sixes winning a lot of games against people that were higher seeds than them in the you know in the round of 32 and the round of 16 so I think, um, you know, it's really interesting because kind of been following, you know, the ACC and some of this tells you is the conference scheduling model something that really needs to be looked at um, to get the right net. I'm not sure the net is actually uh, providing, you know, good data to the committee to make those kind of decisions and getting those seeds right. Um, Because clearly, you know, Florida Atlantic, how many, they won 35 games now or 30? I mean, you know, and so they're a nine seed. Is that what they were? Yeah, they were nine. They were nine. But uh, in the the net, in the final net before Selection Sunday, FAU was number 13 in the country. Yeah. And they put them at nine. Yeah, so I mean, you kind of get into this, what are you really doing? You know, what are you you using? What criteria are you using? And, you know, I think everybody starts to scratch their head. You know, I think people talk a lot about, you know, the last few teams in, but I think probably more important with the committee is making sure the seeds get right and, you know, making it a, you know, a reasonable opportunity for the best teams to advance but um clearly these guys like i said you know i i think basketball has gotten down to um a way the game is played with all you know the high ball screens and the way the refs call the game that you really need a certain type of player to you know to to win at a high level and i think you look at those teams they probably have those guys you look at you know i don't think florida atlantic and san diego state and miami are all that different from a personnel standpoint you know they have those perimeter guys that are athletic and make threes and uh, share the ball and they defend all over and they can defend one through four and even if they get a switch on five they're strong enough to be able to fight through that till they get help so i think that's kind of what you're seeing all those teams 
kind of look alike. Yeah, and they've all got older players as well, predominantly, right. especially in the starting lineup. And uh, we talk about the transfer portal and how much younger guys might filter up to power programs, but you know, you have access to grad transfers and older players at these mid majors that you didn't have access to before, and that's probably part of why all these upsets are happening just sort of blooming up now is because you have so many older players and you have older teams that are built constantly year after year you always have a, an older team uh, at, a, at a given program yeah and I think you know when you have transfers I think that's one of the things that's confusing you know the committee that a lot of these teams that have transfers aren't as good in the beginning in the season as they are in the end of the season because these guys learn to play together i mean look at pitt i mean you know pitt started out the year awful and then once those transfers figured out how to play together they were pretty doggone good there at the end you know and toward you know the conference once they got in the conference they were pretty good at that point but you know they had some really bad losses early in the year and i'm sure part of that was just those guys learning the system learning how to play together so i think um i don't know how you you know you build that into the um, selection process but i think looking at how teams are playing toward the end of the season might be something that needs to be considered well you going down there i am i'm gonna go down uh, i got some meetings i got to go to we're doing our deal with all these assistant coaches we're having a get together on friday um top connect bill seven and um i'll go to the games on saturday and sunday but then i'm coming back i i have work to do you know yeah uh, uh, are you at least uh pleased that you have already made the hire because when you would go to the final four and not make a hire could you breathe without somebody no. jamming a resume or, or pitching a guy to you no that would have been i no, that would have you been a nightmare. Gone. Yeah, I probably wouldn't Bad. have been gone because it would have been, you know, just everybody and their, and their brother would have had the answer for us at good old ETSU. Everybody cares about ETSU, you know, so they want us to get the best possible guy, you know. <laughs> you any Radio Row at all? Bill Walton and his epic 30-minute hit on uh, KFAN every year in Minneapolis. He does, he does, he does one of – I think it's Friday every year before the Final Four. He does about 35 minutes. On, uh, on the Minneapolis Sports Talker. Is it coherent, 35 minutes? Oh, it's Bill Walton. So well, that's, oh, okay. That's but, but people, like, I did the Final Four in Minneapolis in 19 on Radio Row, and people were, like, he had a crowd of, like, 70 or 80 people. It's like his disciples were gathering around their radio booth. It's really something to behold. Yeah, were some of them the Grateful Dead? Did they have on their... Uh, uh, some, some of them certainly look like they had just climbed out of a VW bus. Yep. Yeah, yep. uh, the, the Scooby Doo van, mm-hmm. you know, with the, the mystery the, machine, yeah, with the smoke coming out of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Zoinks. Yeah. All right, Doc. We appreciate it. This good was uh, This was good. Thanks, man. Thanks. Right. Appreciate y'all. All right. So that is uh, inside the dome. It's always entertaining with Doc. Yes, I uh, I agree 100. percent That was a lot of fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, I just I, I don't hate Wofford that much. Okay, it's just like sometimes it just when, when things get political in the conference, they always seem to be in the middle of it. That's all it is. I don't know why you're backtracking now. You <laughs> how you hate Wofford? No. Okay. I'm not gonna say it. I'm not gonna all say right. it. All but right. yes, uh, that was that was definitely an eye-catching committee selection. All right. Well, we we will we will do portal watch as we always do on Wednesday. So. Uh, we appreciate that. Here in another month or so, I'm sure we'll get another Inside the Dome with Dr. Rich Sander. And, again, uh, he likes to do them. And, uh, you know, you may not like the answers, but you get an answer, right?
I love the answers. I thought they were all great. What are you talking about? We'll see you Wednesday. Jane Keith. Biters Run Network. Don't ask a question you don't want to answer to. Oh, you got to be kidding me.